Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste and welcome. It's lovely to be with you all. I'd like to begin this talk with a favorite story. Its protagonist is Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi wise man and a jokester. And in this story, he's resting under the shade of a tall, luscious walnut tree. And as he sits daydreaming, he notices that there's these huge pumpkins growing on delicate vines snaking across the ground. And then he looks up and he squints to see these tiny walnuts growing on high up on the magnificent tree. And he says, how strange mother nature is, you know, to make plump pumpkins grow on spindly little vines while little walnuts have their own impressive tree. And just in that moment, a walnut falls from above and lands, you know, tuck on Mullah Nasruddin's head. And the Mullah rubs his sore head and he picks up the fallen walnut and looks high up into the branches of the trees. And then he looks over, thankfully, at the swollen pumpkins growing safely on the ground. You know, oh, Mother Nature, you are so wise. <laughs> so there's a wisdom in our natural world. And it really brings us back home to our inner wisdom. And there's a elemental aliveness in, in the natural world that reconnects us with our own vitality. And there's a purity. We, in nature, we seem to come home to the truth of our nature, to um, a wider sense of being, to our belonging, to, to life. And I say this because when we sense our natural world being defiled, our own awakened awareness knows it's happening to us. A friend shared with me her granddaughter's letter. It was this poignant, beautiful letter. And this, this uh, granddaughter's 12 years old and She's saying how no one in her school is teaching about the crisis our earth is in and how she had to find out on social media. And I just want to read some. She says, when I grow up, I want to live in a world where the water is clear and blue and the grass is green and the sky is clear and the air is breathable, not a world with polluted oceans and landfills and smoky skies. When I was little, I wanted to have kids and be a parent, but now I don't because I don't wanna make an innocent child live in this messed up world. What I'm saying is teach more about the world and what we can do to change it for the better, not the random stuff that I'm never likely going to use. I don't want to have to find out about what's wrong with the world and, and how to change it by going on social media. I want to learn about the fires and the pollution and how to stop it from school. I wish this was all a lie, but it's not. Can you teach it to me so I don't have to go on social media so I can save the world? You know, our children are more sensitive. They're, they're closer in some ways to what's happening to our earth than the rest of us. There's a, a study from the UK that how the catastrophe of climate change is giving one out of five children nightmares. And, and in the largest study yet, 10,000 young people, this is ages 16 to 25 now, from 10 countries, almost half reported being distressed and anxious in a way that affected their daily lives and their functioning about the state of our world, our climate. And it's impossible not to be moved watching teens plea for a world to pay attention, you know, plea saying this is truly life or death. 
and with such um, courage and passion and care. So we need to be by their sides. And this talk is, is really a continuation of a theme I began last week, which is that to bring healing to our world, we need to realize what Thich Nhat Hanh has called interbeing, which is really our belonging to each other, to this earth, our mother. And so in this talk, we'll be exploring pathways that widen that sense of identity, that enlarge our being and reveal the truth of interbeing. And we'll look at some how we can respond to our world from love, from our hearts. To set the frame, there's a biologist, he's wonderful, Lewis Thomas, who describes our human bodies this way. He says, they're shared, rented, and occupied by countless other tiny organisms without whom we couldn't move a muscle, drum a finger, or think a thought. These bodies are made of earth. They're made of more non-human cells than human and are a part of larger bodies. The world is one giant living, breathing cell with all its working parts linked in symbiosis. So there are no solitary beings. You know, we are not separate selves. <laughs> and nothing can exist without everything else. And many of you have probably heard Carl Sagan's famous line, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh, one of his most famous teachings, and some of you will know it, is that he holds up a piece of paper and he says, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without the trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. If we look into this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter-are. So we don't move through this world remembering interbeing, how what we are, what we experience right in this moment, your experience in this moment is created by infinite other unfolding expressions of life. It's created by your parents' habit of thinking, this particular phase of the moon cycling, where the air pressure is, the sound of my voice right now, what you ate today, your kindergarten teacher, whatever living plant is nearby. Truly, there's no independent entity here. We interbe with all the facets of the universe. We belong to a wholeness. And so this means that everything that's happening to our earth, our larger body, affects all of us. We're in the same boat, truly. Whether we're talking about the pandemic, climate change, swing towards authoritarianism as democracies, the semblance of democracies crumble. You know, we're all in the same boat. And yet, even very frightening wake-ups to huge catastrophes and disasters haven't really catalyzed the shift in consciousness we need to take care of the earth. I wanted to share with you that a month before my son was born, the reactor core at the Chernobyl plant in Russia exploded. And 
Well, as many know, the radioactive clouds spread over most of Europe as far as Canada. I still remember the shock as a this pregnant mom just wondering what kind of world he would inherit. It was the first time I got shocked in that way. Some years later, I found out that Joanna Macy, who I've mentioned a lot, um, beloved teacher, friend, activist, she had conducted a despair and empowerment workshop in one of the cities closest to Chernobyl, right soon after the explosion. And the area had been known for its beautiful forests and mountains, and people were now at home. They were living with their windows and doors sealed with tape because going outside would risk radiation poisoning. So one person in the workshop shared this. He says, this is very hard for us, this being inside like this. Our ancestors were of the forest. Our old stories are of the forest, walking, picnicking, mushrooming. Yes, we were always people of the forest. Then he quietly repeated it again, people of the forest. And so Joanna asked him, she said, Vladimir Ilik, when will you be able to go back into the forest? And with a, a small smile, he shrugged, not in my lifetime. Then he looked at his grandson. He said, not in his lifetime either. And then he gestured to the wallpaper. He said, this is our forest now. It would be centuries. There was a silence. And then a woman asked why Joanna and her team were rubbing their faces in their sorrow. And, and finally, one man actually responded. Joanna wasn't the one to respond. He said, at least we can say to our children that we told the truth. And then another said, these visitors come to bear witness to our suffering. Now they will return to their own communities and tell our story. Let others know what happened. They must never let this poisoning of the earth happen in any other place to anyone else's children. That's not what happened. You know, Chernobyl is a place that's long since been abandoned. Scientists predict the zone won't be safe for human inhabitants for another 20,000 years. 20,000 years. That's what we humans did. And there's been at least 57 accidents and severe incidents since. You know, oil spills, asbestos clouds, gas leaks, Bhopal, I'm thinking of, the great, the great Pacific garbage patch. And what's more insidious than the dramatic ones is how every single day we continue to clear cut trees and put toxins into the air and pollute the waterways and release the greenhouse gases. I can, I can go on, but what it's bringing us to right now is this continuing recognition that due to interbeing, we're all part of the same earth on the same boat, it's sinking. It's sinking, and it requires a collective shift of consciousness, a response. And in the countries most responsible, I'm thinking right now the United States, there's not the sufficient political will to take the actions needed to avoid the greatest level of calamity. So collectively, this is across the globe, we're still too stuck in that egoic trance I talked about last week, that trance where the primary focus is a sense of self and others are more unreal, our sense of the what we call our, our small group self, people that we most feel identified with, but the earth is other. It's not the concern of our immediate wants and fears. And so instead it becomes a domain around profit and power. And this trance is reinforced every day by living in a 
a pretty mental virtual reality removed from our, our senses and from our sensitivity, we get distanced from that belonging to the earth. Thinking of this cartoon I saw with this young boy and he's on his computer, fixed on his computer, his mother's standing by him. He's responding to something she said without looking up. And he says, go out and play. Who are you kidding? What is this? 1962. And we know it. We know that the, the average American child spends some four to seven minutes a day playing outside and seven hours a day in front of a screen. I mean, just think of this, these human animal bodies we have in front of a screen, seven hours a day. And then of course, adults spend seven hours and 11 minutes a day. This is just averages and I just Googled them and they resonate, that's what's happening. So how do we awaken our full sense of interbeing, our belonging to the earth, to this living earth, you know, if it's an unreal other, if we don't feel that active, tender kind of connectedness in love with nature. And our unreal othering extends that disconnection to our own bodies, that they become something to work on, to improve our appearance, something to fight as, as it ages, or something to manipulate with, with drugs to have a, a different, better experience. In another cartoon, I love this one, uh, <laughs> there are two bears and they're, they're supposedly hibernating, they're in their cave, but one of them is wide awake, guys, wide open. And the caption is, darn it, I know better than having a cup of coffee in October. <laughs> uh, so human. <laughs> so, but the point, our egoic trance is organized around controlling our body, controlling the earth body. In other words, there's a separation that creates an unrealness. It's power over, take profit from. So here we are in this trance, this unreal othering, with our body somewhat dissociated. So what goes on for us? What goes on for you when headlines and reports like what I'm about to read come out? So here we go, climate change, biggest threat modern humans have ever faced. If we continue on our current path, we will face the collapse of everything that gives us our security. Food production, access to fresh water, habitable ambient temperature, and ocean food chains. The collapse of everything, of life systems. So what prevents engagement? And when we think of it, I, I, I divided in my mind two main things. And the first is we don't register in an immediate way, alarm, the kind of emotion that compels action. There's a sense of this doesn't quite affect me. It's abstract, it's the future. Um, and we have more immediate stressors that then grab our attention. And by the way, even though we're blocked from that sense of alarm that lets us really respond, there are cracks in the armoring because most adults feel anxious, depressed, distressed by the news. It's just not that, that deep alarm or caring because the alarm can turn to caring that leads to an engaged response. And, and part of what um, makes it so that we're not alarmed is we take our cues from others who are not alarmed, who don't seem freaked out. And I'll share a study I think is so interesting. This was from 1968, long time ago. They had volunteers in a room filling out a questionnaire and there's this steady stream of vapor that pours in. And if they're alone, the respondent will quickly leave the room and they'll look for help and so on. But if there are others there and they're acting calm and continuing to fill in their questionnaires, um, they're much more likely just to stay and do the same thing, even when it's so smoky, it's difficult to see. And some people are coughing and rubbing eyes. 
most people persisted in just filling in the questionnaire and just staying there and for a full six minutes until they were rescued by researchers. So we take our cues. We, you know, it's, I described this phenomenon last week in terms of the Buddhist teachings about how we're like children in a burning house. We're just continuing to do business as usual or playing or whatever we're doing, but not really responding to what's happening. So that's one area is it just does not feel immediate. It doesn't bring up alarm. And the other is powerlessness. I'm just this small separate person. What can I do? Let me share with you. This is uh, a friend from our local IMCW is our local meditation community. And this person reported this after the 2010 oil spill disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, who had gone down there, writes this, the sight of those lovely seabirds covered in oil evoked such a feeling of grief. It seems as though everywhere we turn, there's more evidence that we're destroying our lovely planet. I feel overwhelmed by the size and pervasiveness of the problem. And for me, the most difficult challenge, the contemplation to despair, to feel that nothing can be done, and so to do nothing. So friends, first part of this talk is really the strong forces in our psyche that keep us passive in the face of a collective disaster. Uh, keep us in that egoic trance. And as we know, and you wouldn't be listening if this weren't true, consciousness, which is the grounds of transformation, is evolving. It is evolving. And our purpose is to facilitate this in ourselves and each other and the world. And the way that happens what facilitates that consciousness, there are ways we can pay attention, practices we can do that reconnect us to our bodies and each other and the earth body. So no longer is it unreal others, there's that sense of interbeing. Joanna Macy calls this the work that reconnects. And I want to pause here because I have drawn so much inspiration from Joanna over the years. And I just want to tell you her recent book is called Active Hope, and it's co-written with Chris Johnston. And you can see all my little post-its in it and everything. So it's a high recommend. So what I'd like to do for this next part of our time together is explore four spiritual practices that reconnect, that, that widen our identity in a way that help us experience interbeing. You know, we're not going to save this world out of obligation. We're only going to save this earth because we love this living earth. So these are reflections, and I'll tell you what the four are, just to kind of give you an advance. The, the first one's to do with our, our natural world, reconnecting, and the second to human fellowship, and the third is the flow of time, who we're becoming. And uh, and I'll share what the four reflections are before we we actually move right into them. The first reflection is on reconnecting in our natural world. And the second is the sense of fellowship with other humans. The third is reconnecting to the flow of time. And the fourth is to who we're becoming. So we'll do an actual reflection with each, but let me just speak a little bit about them to give you a warm up. The first one is really something I am suspecting most of you find incredible refuge in, which is the time in natural spaces, in, in the natural world. And the invitation is to deepen your presence and reflect on your belonging when you're outside. Um, and even if you live in an urban area, nature's here. I mean, it's, there is sky and trees and clouds and plants and birds and often parks and sometimes rivers or lakes or waterways. I've shared often that 
I take tremendous refuge in being by the river. I live in Virginia near the Potomac River. And I'll go there and get very, very still. Sometimes it's like it is right now, very cold and wintry, but I'll bundle up, but I'll just start paying attention. And I'll sense the river, I'll sense the flow of the river as if it's just moving right through me, through my body, through my heart. I'll sense my mind kind of merging with the sky. So there's this open heart space and presence. And then just sensing the the currents and the rocks and the aliveness of the sycamore and the geese and the herons. Just all this aliveness is part of the same awareness that all these forms are sourced in the same life energy, the sacredness that animates it all. And then if I focus on any weave in that web, you know, a tree or a bird or a human passing by, then that reflection, we are friends, we inter-are, we belong to the same aliveness, becomes quite sweet. It becomes so real that when I sense that fellowship, that friendliness with all facets of the natural world, that I can never be alone. It's, it's powerful. We are nature. So immersing in the natural world, acting on this, it widens our identity. And this is a, a place maybe to pause and invite you to reflect. And if it helps to close your eyes, please do. Take a few full breaths. And let yourself be transported to a sacred place in this natural world that calls to you, the place you love. It may be deep in the woods or by a river or a stream, in the mountains, by an ocean. Maybe a particular tree you love. Visualize and sense the forms around you, the colors, the smells, the feeling of the area. Let the spirit of the place move through you, real receptive. You might sense your mind merging with sky and just opening to the elements. And if there's a tree or an animal or a bird that your attention goes to, to sense that the same aliveness that animates your being is animating that being, the same life that loves being alive. You might whisper, we are friends. And sense the truth of that as you name it. We inter-are, belong. Just sensing that communion, that you really can't be alone when you let yourself belong to the natural world. Thich says, you carry Mother Earth within you. She is not outside you. Mother Earth is not just your environment. In that insight of interbeing, it's possible to have real communion with the Earth, which is the highest form of prayer, true belonging. So feeling your breath and feeling yourself here, this is the first way of widening into that sense of interbeing, deepening our reflection in the natural world. And the second area is a remembrance of our human fellowship that we're facing these times together. And it's so easy to forget. We can so quickly feel like we're in this bubble moving through the world in this kind of capsule And so widening belonging, we're in this together, we're caring together, we're working together. I think so often of that that now very well-known 
line from Fred Rogers. He said his mother told him this when he was distressed to remember the helpers. There have never been so many humans on the planet trying to serve life. Never so many nonprofits, never so many people writing and teaching about trying to help, healing. Many people working in government, working in so many different settings, people giving money, trying to inspire each other. It's happening. And, you know, we're powerless if we feel alone and separate, and we're empowered together. We're empowered together. There's a huge intelligence and creativity and love to remember and draw on in our, in our collective. You know, uh, many of you might remember reading Sword of the Stone, uh, Sword in the Stone. And the part that stood out for me was so much was when the wizard Merlin was, he was mentoring young Arthur and he had him live for brief periods as different animals. There was a falcon and an ant and a goose, let's say a badger, a carp, a fish, you know, and he'd have Arthur enter into each of them and realize their particular kind of sentience or wisdom. So years later, when it comes time for the knights to compete and see who can draw the, the sword out of stone, you know, who is going to be king, because that's the whole setup. It's Arthur's turn. And he initially he tries and he's feeling weak and he gets exhausted. But then he glances around and he sees all the creatures whose consciousness he had inhabited. So he draws on their powers and he removes the sword from the stone with ease and he's proclaimed king. The message is that we don't have to have every skill, but it's in those moments that we remember our fellowship, that we belong to something larger, that we're empowered, the power with, not power over, and that's the power that transforms. So again, pause and, and just take a moment to investigate a little. And again, you might close your eyes if you'd like. Breathing, inviting yourself right here. And you might imagine and sense others who right now are right here reflecting with us. So there's you and me and others and those who will be reflecting with us over the weeks and those everywhere who are around the globe who are touched and sincerely caring, wanting to be part of healing, and who are bringing an enormous range of capacities. So you might include in your mind others you know or don't know, who are dedicated to bringing their brightness and care. The truth of fellowship, that there's a movement of beings, and through history, these are the movements of deep caring that have, have the power to transform. So take a moment to feel the potential of this, of relating to that, that fellowship, that enlarged belonging, remembering the helpers. So we've named so far, we widen our identity as we belong to the natural world and belong to this fellowship of caring beings. The third way of widening being, of interbeing, is by extending our belonging through time. And it's interesting, we tend to think of ourselves as individuals removed from the historic past or the future, and yet Many indigenous cultures have the wisdom of intimate relatedness and relationship with ancestors. I mean, these are relationships that give strength and direction and widen belonging. Maladoma Some, who's a West African shaman and author, writes, in many non-Western cultures, the ancestors have an intimate and absolutely vital connection with the world of the living. They're always available to guide, to teach, and to nurture. And then from 
Linda Hogan, indigenous writer, wise woman, walking. I am listening to a deeper way. Suddenly, all my ancestors are behind me. Be still, they say. Watch and listen. You are the result of the love of thousands. And then Thich Nhat Hanh. Whenever I walk, sit, eat, or practice calligraphy, I do so with the awareness that all my ancestors are within me at that moment. I am their continuation. Whatever I am doing, the energy of mindfulness enables me to do it as us, through interbeing, not as me. When I hold a calligraphy brush, when I hold a calligraphy brush, I know I cannot remove my father from my hand. I know I cannot remove my mother or my ancestors from me. They're present in all my cells, in my gestures, in my capacity to draw a beautiful circle. So if you've never explored this way of reflection and prayer, it's a powerful, sacred pathway. Let's practice a bit. Again, let yourself come home into the moment. Feel this body breathing. And you might reflect that you are the result of the love of thousands. That this life that's coursing through you, you can feel with your beating heart and the pulses and the warmth and the coolness, the sounds, sensations. This life that courses through you has been flowing since beginningless time through countless beings who loved to live, to pass on life. Imagine back through generations. And you might call on those wise ones, those most helpful and awake, those most connected to the living earth, to earth wisdom, you might call on them for their guidance. Call on them for support. Ask and invite this. Be still, watch and listen, be receptive. And sensing those before this timeless flow of life, loving to live, to feel your thanks. And you might sense into the future, those who are yet to come either through your bloodlines or otherwise touched by your presence, your actions, the ways you've belonged to life of these times, to sense those of the future. There's a Kenyan proverb, we have not inherited this land from our ancestors, but rather borrowed it from our children. Sense your intention for the well-being of those in the future, your wish for them. And now take a moment to rest in that widened being that includes past and future. Sensing interbeing, 
yourself as loving sentience, as timeless presence, belonging to an infinite flow of life. And then you can continue with your eyes closed if you'd like, or open them. We've, we've named three ways of widening our sense of identity into interbeing through nature, through fellowship, through extending time. The fourth is attending to the loving awareness that's waking up through us. And again, let's just continue reflecting because if I ask you, do you sense that you're awakening, that you're more conscious through time, more caring over time. Can you feel that? That there's more awareness? Can you sense what's shifted some? Perhaps it's your intention, that your intention is more towards self-kindness and loving others. That you're more intentional about presence. Perhaps your, your care for the world has widened, more are included. You might sense your future self, 10 years, 15 years. What matters to them? If you visualize and sense your future self, What's their compassion like? What's the quality of heart, of wisdom? How do they relate to others, to the earth? And right this moment, as you attend, you might ask yourself, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? And just sense into the qualities of presence or tenderness. capacity to respond to what's around you. The truth of belonging to the living web, to awareness, to love. If you'd like to open your eyes, please do. Your ongoing meditation will keep nurturing this awareness of who you're becoming. It'll keep widening your sense of who you really are, that sense of interbeing. And what happens is, as you widen, more and more of your actions will come from your heart. So we're entering the final little bit of this of this talk and of these reflections. And I'd like to just speak some to the actions that serve healing, what we can do. How can we express what's called love in action? And Immanuel Kant, philosopher, described moral acts and beautiful acts. And the former, moral acts come from obligation or guilt or duty. But the latter come from a deeper place. Beautiful acts are acts that are aligned with our heart and spirit. They're actions that come out of knowing our belonging. And that term, love in action, really has a lot of resonance for me. Um, recently, a few weeks ago, I took a week off and did a, a silent home retreat. And was reflecting on interbeing and all everything we're, we're talking about, belonging. And one of the 
most beautiful moments. I love reflecting on what's called the Bodhisattva's vow, which is really the aspiration for awakening, was just sensing the language of this prayer, may this life be an expression of love and action. May this life be an expression of love and action. So that was kind of the the words for how I was uh, experiencing my aspiration. And so it's an interesting inquiry what that translates to. And uh, recently, during a a question period at an event I, I was doing, someone asked about why spiritual people aren't more actively engaging on behalf of the earth. It's an important question. And I talked some about the the tendency to feel overwhelmed and powerless and, you know, about what one person can do. And then I said something I regretted. And this is just a few weeks ago I'm talking about now. I said that we can all participate, you know, in, in healing the earth by how we live our own lives, the way we consume, how lightly we walk on the planet. And It's true that this is a way we can align in our personal life, and it's important. But at this point, it's not enough. That interbeing tells us this is a collective suffering. The scale is vast, and we need to be part of a collective movement. We need to participate together. If there's going to be any movement towards healing. So what this means is giving our time, skills, money, support to organizations dedicated to doing what's possible or to the national leaders that we know are dedicated to caring for the earth, that that's the priority. Um, We need to give our energies to where there's power to make a difference and do all we can to inspire our networks in this way. And we have many different skills we can bring to that. You know, if you're good at teaching, teach about it. Teach about what this earth is going through and interbeing and how we're part of the healing we need to be. If you are a writer, write about it. If you're good at communicating and talking, talk about it. If you're an artist, make the art that that shows it or the music that expresses it. The key is to engage somehow in this movement of engaged spirituality, to bring caring alive. There's a a powerful question Joanna Macy suggests we ask ourselves, which is, how can transformation happen through me? My friend Franco Soseski, who's author and founder of Zen Hospice in San Francisco, he, he puts it this way. He says, what is love asking for me today? So these kind of inquiries are the spirit of engaged spirituality, or what some call engaged Buddhism, knowing our belonging and and acting from that love. So as a way of closing, because I just mentioned my own reflection or my own aspiration on living from love, on, on love in action, I thought what we do is reflect together on aspiration. And I would share with you five vows that Joanna Macy offers that may resonate with you and, of course, invite you to attune to how you might language your own aspiration. So this is our final of a number of reflections. And again, if you want to bring your attention inward, please do. Take a few moments to arrive, to let your attention be here, to feel your breath and feel your body. Before we begin, I want to bring you back to that workshop after the explosion in Chernobyl where one person said, these visitors come to bear witness to our suffering. Now they will return to their own communities and tell our story, let others know what happened. 
They must never let this poisoning of the earth happen in any other place to any one else's children. Feeling your own heart and asking, who am I becoming? What is love asking for me as part of this living, sacred earth body? Take some moments to listen and sense and inhabit the power of these aspirational vows from Joanna. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings. To live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume. To draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and those beings of all species. To support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it. To pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. And as we close, friends, I invite you to sense if there's some other words you would want to offer that expresses your heart's aspiration. As we close together, please feel your prayer for our beautiful and troubled world, as well as our shared prayer for a collective awakening of awareness and love. May our collective heart space hear the cries of the earth and respond in a healing way. May our lives be an expression of love in action. May there be a growing justice, compassion, and peace in our world. May all beings everywhere be free. Thank you, my friends, for being in this together, sending you all blessings. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.